The Prosperity Project is a programme of research focused on identifying the practical measures that will enable Indigenous communities to improve their social and economic outcomes. As part of this research, we are also looking at how innovation in the approach taken to service delivery and a focus on co-accountability and evaluation could lead to improved outcomes for Indigenous people. While there is much goodwill in Australia to improve Indigenous outcomes, there is a surprising gap in the knowledge about what works. The Prosperity Project aims to bring people together to help fill that knowledge gap and drive the agenda for change. As our recent research reports, mapping the Indigenous program and funding maze and evaluating Indigenous programs, a toolkit for change, showed the current service delivery model is failing Indigenous people. Despite billions of taxpayers' funding, there has been very little improvement in outcomes, particularly for remote Indigenous Australians. One of the initiatives in recent years to attempt to address societal problems that governments seem unable to solve is social impact investing. In January this year, the Commonwealth Department of Treasury released a discussion paper on social impact investing, noting that it offers an opportunity to bring together governments and providers with investors who wish to see better social outcomes. Social impact investing also provides an opportunity to build a stronger culture of a robust evaluation and evidence-based decision-making and service delivery by learning what works. The discussion paper proposed the creation of an enabling environment for social impact investing in order to support private sector-led social impact investing and co-funding by state and territory governments, arguing that such a shift would generate savings and avoid future costs by funding reforms to deliver better outcomes for Australians. The federal government demonstrated cautious support of this approach in the 2017-2018 budget when it announced that it will spend $10.2 million over 10 years, doesn't sound like a lot of money, in partnering with state governments to trial innovation or innovative programs aimed at improving housing and welfare outcomes for young people at risk of homelessness, funded by social impact investors. However, I'm not going to talk any more about social impact investing. I'll leave it to Josephine to talk in more detail about the various opportunities that could flow from social impact investment. Uh, Josephine uh, Cashman is a Waramai entrepreneur from New South Wales. She is a lawyer, businesswoman, social entrepreneur, and sits on the board of the Sydney Harbour Federation Trust, is the deputy chair of the Gadigal Information Services, and also founder of the Big River Impact Foundation, Big River Impact Investments, and Riverview Global Partners. Josephine recently addressed the United Nations Full Human Rights Council on Violence Against Indigenous Women, and is widely acknowledged for her social advocacy work. Uh, we've had the pleasure of having Josephine talk at a number of events. Uh, the last one was a uh, talk at the National Press Club in November 2016 with Marcia Langton and Jacinta Price. Please join me in welcoming Josephine to the stage. Oh, thank you for coming tonight. And I'd like to acknowledge the Centre for Independent Studies work in having important conversations that will hopefully lead to meaningful and most needed change for the first Australians. They've been outstanding in their advocacy and particularly with Sarah Hudson's reports that have created conversations that need to be had. Now firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the country, elders past, present and future. Many tonight may not understand the fundamental importance 
of trade and economics to thousands of years of Aboriginal existence on this beautiful continent as the oldest continuing culture. The kinship system perpetuated cycles of trade so that goods and services could flow throughout all parts of the country. We know that in the north of Australia, um, Aboriginal groups were trading um, with our Asian neighbours well before the East Indies Dutch, the Dutch East Indies Company rather, first coined the idea of globalisation. Australia was an interconnected country which had massive trade routes that were sung through song lines spanning the entire continent. So one doesn't necessarily equate economics or those type of topics to Indigenous um, society, but I think it's important and I hope you enjoy my um, talk on impact investing. Now, it's clear that people have seemed to lose, lost faith in both the free market and in government. Capitalism and investing are now in pejorative terms, while government is increasingly seen as unable to balance its budget and is wasting taxpayers' money on poorly judged mm -hmm. judge strategies. However, in a post-GFC environment, with a strong focus on the risk and return matrix and corporate reputation threats, capital markets are becoming increasingly attracted to impact investing, an approach that could both restore faith in a capital-free market economy and to prevent excessive government waste on social programs and infrastructure. Impact investing offers opportunities for investors with a, with a commitment to social responsibility to invest in solutions to entrench societal problems for both capital and social impact returns. Successful impact investing is applied to well-designed solutions to problems such as overcrowding in social housing and employment programs for at-risk populations. It harnesses the speed and efficiency of the capital markets and, at the same time, prevent wasteful government spending. Tonight, I'll ex examine the politicisation of, of financial policy since the GFC, in addition to outlining how impact investing functions and the opportunities it creates. I'll explore how impact investing could revolutionise results for disadvantaged Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. I will touch on some of the work of the Big River Impact Foundation, where we're working with tier one businesses in a positive demonstration of corporate collaboration and problem solving to create Indigenous impact fund products. So let's pinpoint the problems. I do not wish to delve into the causes of the GFC, but rather to inspire new ways of thinking that are developed from the principle of enlightened self-interest and brings the strength of the capitalist financial system, including its speed, risk processes and results-driven culture into solving epidemic societal problems. Most people lack the understanding of the complexities of the financial system, so it is easier for biases to emerge. 
This creates an environment where government and individuals seek to blame sections of the economy for all their financial woes. Many examples of that. And has led to a, a substantial amount of scapegoating post-GFC. This can be no doubt that the US, there can be no doubt that the US financial system failed in 2008. However, the banking sector was not solely to blame. It was a compounded moral crisis that led to the GFC. We have seen scandals involving the banking industry here in Australia. And while we cannot change the past, we are all responsible for the moral and ethical failings and share a vested interest in ensuring that we do not repeat history for future generations. If we do not address challenging issues within our democracy and financial system, we run the risk of outside interests, including maverick governments, overtaxing and overregulating the financial services and banking industry to the extent that it has a negative impact on growth and the areas of financial and social innovation like impact investing. The politi politicisation of financial policy is evident even here in Australia where our coalition government supposedly supports a free market economy but is now taxing big banks to provide itself with more money to spend on social programs, health and infrastructure. For those of us who believe in a free market economy, this is a bitter pill to swallow. When coupled with the fact that governments appear to be inept at solving social problems and waste a substantial amount of money in their failed attempts to do so. For those of us who do not want our taxpayers' contribution wasted, this is a huge concern. It is not uncommon, for example, that um, infrastructure pro projects blow over budget by billions of dollars. Certainly there's many examples even in this state. In Indigenous Affairs, we see less than 10% of programs properly evaluated. And we have no idea where the government is spending is truly meeting the needs. If a company ran a business like this, it would be bankrupt and would find itself without investors or customers. Driven by 24 news hour cycles, politicians and political parties are spurred by different agendas day to day. Their interests can vary in their efforts to attract votes, influence opinion polls and leverage support within their own factions and parties. Our bureaucrats, who are usually the ultimate funding decision makers based on the policy of the day, cannot be held to account for the previous policies relating to funding. Well, in contrast with government funding, Impact investing, by its very nature, must have a strong level of rigour and stability. Investors deploy capital and take a certain level of their own risk and therefore a clear risk and return matrix must be developed before any capital can be deployed into impact investing projects. Therefore, the primary driver for investors is return of positive social and financial and in some cases, environmental impacts over the longer term. 
Impact investing aims to generate beneficial and measurable social or environmental impact alongside with financial returns. Impact investors can include <coughs> trusts, foundation and institutions, including super funds, not-for-profits and individuals. In Australia, more than 67% of investors expect impact investing to be a significant part of their portfolio in coming years, with active investors looking to triple the size of their impact portfolios within the next five years. The Australian market is expected to grow to 32 billion by 2021. In 2015 alone, 157 impact investors committed 15.2 billion, that's US dollars, in 7,551 impact investment projects globally. The target sectors included, included food and agriculture, healthcare, housing, energy, education, microfinance and other inclusive financial services. Impact investing as an alternative asset class are emerging as an attractive investment option with limited um, cohesion to traditional forms of investment. In the UK, impact investment is predominantly from, the from philanthropic foundations, while in the US, larger investment banks like Goldman and Sachs have acted as investors. There, I'll just briefly, and I'm not going to go into it too much, but I'll it, it describe the three main um, impact investing models that are currently being used globally. Social, the first one is social finance and impact investments are, are made into companies, organisations and funds that provide services that meet a social need within the intended intention rather of generating measurable and environmental impacts alongside a social return. There are, the second one is the payment for outcomes and contracting arrangements whereby governments financially reward providers and sometimes private investors for having a, a positive social measurable impact on the lives of the service users. That's been really successful, that model in New South Wales, with um, some of the new social impact bonds selling out within a week and giving investors a 15% return, which is fantastic given our uh, market at the moment. Finally, um, impact bonds are, yeah, are the example of the payment by um, for result model and service providers agree to a certain outcome. Investors receive a return based on a, an agreed social outcome and government saves on the costs if the agreed outcomes are achieved. In contrast, the, cu the current government grant regime is in desperately need of reform, not least because it is embedded with red tape. NGOs with several different types of funding streams from federal, state and philanthropic sources waste resources acquitting grants rather than a providing services. For, I'll give you a, a, a recent example. A small NGO that straddles on three different jurisdictions and, and is subject to grants from federal, state and philanthropic um, donors, at, at one point had over 100 grants to acquit annually. And this area within central Australia has a, a, a population of around 3,000. So 100 grants for 3,000, population of 3,000. 
the short-term nature and the lack of an overall theory of change and the lack of sector and funding collaboration can see the same types of programs duplicated within many communities. The Forest Review provided an exa stark example of this in a place like Wilcannia, where there is many programs are there as there are people. And there's probably more programs than people. Impact investing by its very nature remedies this by taking a longer and deeper look at the problem and solutions. Investors demand a business approach, which means lean operations, continual, continuous monitoring, collaboration, oversight and results. Impact investing is different from corporate respo responsibility, CSR, some of you may know it by, or social responsible investing, CRI, or environmental, social and government reporting, ESG. Understandably, many are confused by the myriad of these definitions. Impact investing has an important distinction from these types of do-good corporate res responsibility and participation and investment principles. The global definition of impact investing comes from the Rockefeller Foundation, which coined the term in 2007. Impact invest investments are investments into corporations, organisations and funds with the intention to generate measurable social and environmental impact alongside a financial return. Despite the impressive capital and interest in impact investing, it is important to note that even with the current growth in impact investing, it is still insignificant compared to the mammoth amount invested by other groups, including governments with grant rounds, corporations or corporates through their CSR spending and philanthropic donations. But impact investing is compelling for its potential to find market-based solutions to epidemic societal problems. Such investments have the potential to scale up quickly in partnership with government. My talk must be so interesting. Someone had to watch a video. I'm just joking. <laughs> Governments, industry and other stakeholders. And impact investing is all about finding a solution through such collaboration. For a point, pointed example of the transformational power of impact investing and its scalability, one only needs to examine the success of the Indian microfinance sector. The microfinance movement in India was created by social entrepreneurs seeking to create scalable impact. It was, in fact, supported by India's earliest, earliest impact investors. This has generated a $8 billion US dollar industry and is now integral and a main part of India's banking and financial system. In contrast, corporate social responsibility has not created the same positive impact in India. In 2013, India's parliament enacted a section within the Indian Companies Act prescribing a mandatory spend of 2% on CSR or corporate social responsibility of an average of net profits for companies meeting a specified financial threshold. Recent reports 
have analyzed, have found that this law has failed to create the legislative intent to have companies positively impact on many of the great social challenges facing modern India. The report found that the law failed because of poor design, lack of a clear lack of clear obligations and poor law enforcement that did not generate a natural ethical obligations and for companies to obey this law. Spending, whether it's corporate or government, without a clear plan and framework will always fail. It fails in both cor the corporate sector and in the government sector. Welfare does not assist communities or individuals to propel them out of poverty. Rather, it creates a sense of lethargy and hopelessness. I think we all agree. Sarah Hudson's 2016 Centre for Independent Studies report, Mapping the Indigenous Program and Funding Maze, outlined the total failure of government spending to alleviate chronic poverty, particularly for those who live in rural and remote and very remote areas. Hudson highlighted that there was much goodwill in Australia to improve Indigenous outcomes. However, too many programs imp um, are implemented because of their perceived benefit rather than a rigorous assessment of evidence. Hudson's research examined the total spending on Indigenous programs and estimated this could be at least 5.9 billion, let's say 6 billion annually, and it comprised of federal expenditure of 3.28 billion, state and territory government expenditure of 2.35 billion, and income sourced by the Indigenous not-for-profit se sector of 224 million. Sadly, less than 10%, just 88 programs of these 1,082 programs have been evaluated either during or after implementation. And of those programs evaluated, few use methods that could truly provide evidence of the program's effectiveness. Hudson outlined numerous issues, including multiple service providers and NGOs operating with overlapping priorities within the same parameters with little evidence of success. And she arg argued that funding is not necessarily going to where it's most needed. I think we've come to the same conclusion. What a mess. It is no wonder Indigenous Australians are frustrated and that the average taxpayer would be scratching their heads to understand this tragic failure. For more depressing reading about failures in Indigenous affairs, one can go straight to the recent federal government reports, including two Productivity Commission reports, an overcoming disadvantage and Indigenous expenditure, the, National Audit, the Australian National Audits Office report on the implementation of Indigenous advancement strategy and the Closing the Gap report and its accompanying Prime Ministerial statement. These detailed Evidence-based reports provide fr a frightening window to the lives of Indigenous people, particularly those in remote Australia. In the 2016 Australian Bureau of Statistics census showed that little over 20% of Indigenous Australians live in remote communities. A total 
of approximately 150,000 people. There, ha there are some very good areas of progress in Indigenous Australia, mostly in urban environments. But unless we can address the overwhelming crisis in remote Australia, the Closing the Gap report will show the same failure every year. The key issue in remote, in remote Indigenous Australia is the lack of an economy and the lack of infrastructure to create an enabling environment to support local economies and sustainable remote communities. Australians living outside remote Indigenous Australia enjoy an enabling environment for themselves and their families. They have access to parks, playgrounds, cinemas, shopping centres, roads, power, water, sewage systems, telecommunication, housing, health services, education, community safety, policing and professional services that mostly do not exist in remote Indigenous Australia. A 2015 infrastructure audit of the 73 largest remote Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory found that less than 50% had mobile and data services, only 26 had a standard town planning regimes, less than 50% had a permanent police presence and housing only met 60% of the demand. Nearly all had no sealed transport services, ensuring that those in the north are inaccessible by land for half of the year due to flooding. The lack of... The impact of this lack of infrastructure is devastating for Indigenous women. When you go home tonight, take a minute to imagine what it would be like to manage your three-bedroom household if you had 15 people living in it, if you only had one stove, if you didn't have a landline, internet or mobile phone, if the water and power didn't regularly work and if there wasn't a Bunnings around the corner that enab enabled you to manage your own repairs for basic problems such as a leaking tap. It can take more than a month to fix this through the current bureaucratic repairs and maintenance system. Imagine trying to raise your family in those circumstances. Could your kids go to school? Could you support their homework? Could you or your partner go to work? This is a barren, desolate scene. That is the daily lives by tens of thousands of Indigenous women across remote Australia. Now, the solution is to build enabling environments across remote Australia. This will require billions of dollars of investment over the coming decades. Most importantly, this infrastructure investment must be leveraged to support sustainable remote communities by facilitating local and regional economies. For most social and economic indicators, average outcomes for Indigenous Australians in remote areas are poorer than those living in major cities and regional areas. Indigenous Australians in remote areas have poorer reading and writing and numeracy results in year three at less than 55% of students' performance and, and less than 55%. And the student performance declines with the remoteness. 
In 2011, the proportion of Indigenous Australians aged 20 to 24 with a Year 12 education or higher was less in remote areas, ranging from 64% in major cities to 30.7% in very remote areas. Home ownership also declines with increased remoteness. For Indigenous Australians in 2012 to 2013, decreasing from 38.4% in major cities to 38.1% in the inner regional areas to 29.7% in outer regional areas, 19% in remote areas, to only 5.1% in very remote areas. These data indicates critical social and economic disadvantage prevalent in remote communities, which both contributes to and is reflected by low employment a high degree of welfare dependence and a lack of economic development. Indigenous home ownership has been identified by some remote communities as a path towards alleviating this disadvantage. This is exactly where impact investing can play a part. Obviously governments cannot afford or do not have the infrastructure to invest the capital needed to deliver this significant enabling environment to many of these communities. And impact investing, rather than social spending without a return, is the correct mechanism to create this, this substantial change required. With the development of industry and with our Asian neighbours in the north, many of these small communities could become sustainable in the future. I listened to the Human Services Minister, Alan Tudge's recent speech at the CIS about welfare dependency, and I found it completely uninspiring. Family values and getting off alcohol and drugs are important. However, when you look at the disadvantage in the most impoverished Indigenous communities, you will find a familiar thread and causal effect. This causal effect is housing, or rather the considerable lack of it. When you examine the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health work framework, health work framework rather, you can clearly see the massive social, financial and health impacts of household overcrowding. The health impacts of this cannot be underestimated. This year, at the 2017 Gama Festival, I was moved by the Gurmach clan's performance before the Prime Minister and Opposition Leader in their tribute to the late Dr G Yinapingu, who died tragically from a kidney-related disease. The high incidence of kidney disease in remote Indigenous communities can be directly related to overcrowding conditions. Skin diseases in early life are systematic of overcrowding and have a causal link to later kidney disease. It appears governments have failed through their funding regime to deploy adequate capital and a reasonably priced, reasonably priced housing. 
In some communities, and this is a fact, houses cost more than one million each to build. And I mean, these aren't McMansions, they're dog boxes. And usually generate few or little local employment opportunities. It's not uncommon, the price is so high, that they fly in and fly out the labour every day. In the worst affected areas of the Northern Territory, there are 19 adults and children per room. 19 adults and children per room. There is no lack of capital for social impact investing in Australia. Rather, the challenge has been the ability to deploy capital effectively given the lack of credible and worthy projects. Governments should partner with social entrepreneurs, investors, sponsors and investment managers to collaborate in creating public-private partnerships that generate jobs, local employment and local empowerment and, and much-needed deployment of social infrastructure to create healthy enabling environments in remote Indigenous communities. Ideally, the government would partner with investors and co in co-funding impact investing projects. Instead of punishing banks and using them as scapegoats, they should provide greater stimulus and incentives for banks and investors to invest in impact investing to solve intractable social problems. Now, I'm going to talk about me. Um, for the first time in history, we've brought together a consortium of nationally and globally recognised countries to lead the first social impact investment, Indigenous investment fund. It focuses on investing in remote Indigenous communities. The consortium is brought together by Big River Impact Investing, Proprietary Limited and Big River Impact Foundation. It is directed by myself and Professor Marcia Langton, amongst others, and I've got our other professor, Professor Aaron Korn, another director in the audience. Our co corporate consortium is made up of Allen's Linklaters for Legal and Taxation Advice and Perpetual for Capital Access Fund and Asset Management. It brings together an unprecedented level of Australian and international expertise in the financial industry, capital raising, investment, trusteeship, legal advisory, social impact investing, and direct knowledge and experience of remote Aboriginal communities. We've also partnered with Norton Rose Fulbright, Ashurst, Bright Lights Investment Managers, Marsh Insurance Brokers, IGA, Deloitte and EY. While Big River Impact Investment is a new company. Our consortium has a proven expertise and experience to be the first movers in social impact investment market in Australia. The Big River Foundation and its social partners, which include Google, Info Exchange, the Good Shepherd Microfinance, will work with community leadership to co-design and build robust, digitalised frameworks for ensuring long-term social returns from our projects. Each member of the consortium brings unparalleled credentials and reputation to the market and a proven delivery capacity, capability rather, in respect in their respective areas and a demonstrated commitment to improve outcomes for Indigenous Australians. 
We are excited about our projects but currently are engaged in confidential discussions. We cannot disclose our pipeline of opportunities yet. What I can say to you today is our pilot project is a private driven social enterprise with private sector capital invested with an emphasis on creating substantial government savings. We have focused on community empowerment, local job creation of over 140 jobs a year on our pilot, developing a sustainable Indigenous supply chain of businesses and home ownership. We are concentrating our efforts on remote communities with stable local leadership. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities are desperately desperately need this empowering support rather than the continuation of the same old merry-go-round of government funding and with its subsequent lack of results and depressing reports. Impact investing will inspire and imp the implementation of far better solutions. Using the approach of the capital markets means that when there is a price on something, and there is much more, and there is a much more effective investment thesis. Capital can operate with lightning speed. I'm really excited about future opportunities that a mature impact invest in investment industry can deliver when we can price social returns, and the market can work with investors to create the rapid change needed to build a better world. Thank you very much for listening to the talk.